hey everyone uh, before we start today's episode i wanted to quickly tell you about the membership drive that i am doing on patreon.com slash fire these times to celebrate over two years of this podcast if we hit the goal of 100 new supporters at five dollars or more a month or 50 a year i'll be able to hire a producer which would give me more time to focus on the research and interviews and actually start releasing two episodes a week instead of one if you become a supporter in addition to getting early access to all episodes you will also have access to our monthly hangout in which myself and everyone else who supports this project come together and chat about pretty much everything. Um, it happens every month on a Saturday and you have access to the link and everything related to that uh, on Patreon. And lastly, if you cannot donate, you can still support by sharing this podcast with your friends and families and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. This helps get more exposure to this podcast and introduce it to more folks. You can also follow this podcast and project on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Substack, and of course, the main website. So thanks again, everyone, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. So my name is Edin Haider-Pasic. Uh, I'm a historian. I currently work at uh, Loyola University, Chicago. I uh, study the history of the modern Balkans, uh, really 19th and 20th centuries, uh, and, and have kind of interest in historical methodology, uh, uh, broader kind of questions of, about philosophy of history. Uh, and I guess one of the things that I've recently written is an article uh, about uh, the limitations of uh, historians confronting politicians who spread uh, deliberate lies about history, but I think it raises broader questions about how we deal with uh, uh, projects that deliberately step outside of uh, essentially evidence-based ideas. Yeah, I mean, the, so the essay is called What Use is Fact-Checking Against Fact-Free Politics, and it was published on Public Seminar, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, Walk us through at least some of the main ideas, if that's okay, just kind of ground us in this conversation. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess there's two things. There's like a short-term context uh, that led me to write this piece, and then I think some longer-term things that I can maybe mention uh, that I was thinking about in the background. So the short-term reason, and it, it's a substantial part of the article, uh, the essay as well, is... Uh, the political situation in Bosnia, <clears throat> which uh, is in currently in, in post-war Bosnia, basically in the last 10, 15 years, or maybe since the war that ended in 1995. And uh, there has been various threats of uh, secession in Bosnia for uh, several years, uh, off and on. Uh, but in November, uh, last year, tw November 2021, uh, I came to a kind of a pretty stark crisis. Uh, basically, in 2021, earlier that year, uh, the top official who was in charge of uh, implementing the Dayton Peace Accords in Bosnia imposed a new law banning genocide denial in the country. And it's a general uh, ban, uh, a blanket ban, but it was widely understood that the law would hit hard uh, Milorad Dodik, who is this leader uh, of the Republika Srpska entity uh, that I can talk about in a bit. Uh, it's a separate entity that has its own uh, history rooted in the 1990s war. 
and uh, in an apparent escalation, Dodik uh, is this uh, Serbian nationalist who'd been making various threats about secession, referendums on secession before, but in last year he took a couple of concrete steps uh, to form separate state institutions and announced, you know, that in the next six months that he would seek the formation of a separate military, that he passed some laws and, you know, uh, uh, making sure that that could happen. So obviously this is what set off the alarms, uh, not only in Bosnia, but uh, Western politicians got involved because the threat to create a new army uh, would potentially provoke a new conflict. So uh, ordinarily in Washington, D.C. or Brussels or the U.N., Today, nobody really cares about Bosnia. I mean, I think it's just, uh, at best, it's an afterthought. Uh, but in the fall of 2021, uh, that's when suddenly you had these debates in the UN or in Brussels or in DC about uh, what's next for Bosnia or uh, Bosnia on the brink. Like that article with that same headline has been reprinted like a hundred times. <laughs> and uh, that's when a couple of news outlets uh, reached out to me as a historian of the modern Balkans to kind of give an explainer about the crisis. And I think one of the requests uh, specifically asked for like a deeper history uh, that explains this conflict. And that's the sort of short-term occasion for this essay. But let me just say very briefly that, you know, like it's not just about last year, in the piece and in generally most things that I try to do, I don't know how well I do them, but is to maybe ask broader questions in this case about the nature of denial, uh, about the role of history in society. And I think that's especially important to ask those kind of bigger questions uh, in various ways uh, for us that come from, I mean, I think you should call it kind of like the periphery uh, from places like Syria or Bosnia or Sudan or Taiwan, and to insist on our stories as world stories, you know, just as relevant as anywhere else in the world. Uh, and I think in European and American media or academia sometimes, those kind of places from the periphery tend to pop up only in times of crisis. You know, like when there's this kind of crisis last year, when their histories are being spotlighted as different uh, from Western ones, like they depart from the assumed norm uh, and appear you know, different somehow, not on the same planes as Western or global ones. And, and I know something that, you know, like Syrian intellectuals like Yassin Hajjah Saleh uh, had talked in an earlier conversation about how American or Western European leftists are happy to lecture about Syria, uh, but not engage with Syrians as equals uh, that have to say something about the world. They can say something, you know, useful about the world. So generally, just kind of to step back and end my <laughs> uh, 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 explanation about the piece, I try to raise issues that are rooted in Bosnia, uh, but also ask bigger questions about history and politics uh, that can be relevant to, you know, America or Ukraine or Turkey. And I was happy to see that the essay was translated into Turkish. So my thanks to Evren Sunicio for uh, making that uh, possible. Uh, and as a historian, I basically became concerned that historians were being expected in a time of crisis uh, to either provide a deeper history uh, of crises that sometimes have shallow roots, or they're asked to like fact check 
what some statesman said about history. And that's what uh, I wanted to rethink in this essay and to kind of uh, 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 push back against this and say, you know, what are the power relations in this, uh, in this setup? Right. Thanks a lot for that. And the first thing that comes to my mind is you mentioned on the brink. There are also many headlines of on the brink when it comes to Lebanon. It's become sort of a joke among folks I know, like friends of mine and stuff like, if this is on the brink, what what's like what's worse than that? You know, like how how does it get worse than that? But because it's been on the <laughs> brink for years and years and years now. But um, I guess the broader question, and this is uh, I know the answer because I've read the essay. But uh, listeners who haven't read it yet, I feel like maybe like a easy response uh, would be like, well, what's wrong with um, fact-checking and a fact-free politics. Isn't that how we challenge uh, fact-free politics, basically, by providing mm-hmm. facts? I think there's still this idea in a lot of circles. Um, I, I hover around a lot the climate uh, activist world, and um, I think in recent years, there's been more and more of an understanding that that's just not enough. It's not enough to tell people global warming is real, this is why it's happening, this is what we must do, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. There are like other things that also need to be taken into consideration because for the most part, most people at least know the general gist of things. It's mm-hmm. not just a matter of they need to be presented with the information to therefore be empowered, although th- that's part of it. But why is it uh, make the case basically as to why that is not enough? And how can it be? You mentioned it a bit, but let's get into it a bit more. Mm-hmm. But how can it get used, you know, in, in dishonest ways, basically? Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the last part that you said, I think, is actually that we have to, we, is one of the starting points that I'm thinking about. And uh, I will say that it, I think of that essay is not uh, trying to present a solution. Maybe it is more about uh, trying to pinpoint a problem. And that the problem that I see is that we have, let's say, in, in climate uh climate collapse uh, 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 problem that we're facing, uh, when you have politicians that are in charge of making policies say, uh, you know, we're just not sure about the science, there are different indications that maybe it's not as bad as scientists are saying, and maybe things are actually getting better in some ways. Uh, I think instead of trying to start with that statement and then fact check it, I think we have to step back and consider the context in which we have we have often scientists or historians whose role is often seen as apolitical or impartial confronting a person that is explicitly political or has uh, a mandate has the power to shape laws or pass decrees uh, and do something about this. And the very fact that they are uh, not identifying certain facts as real or based in evidence uh, is the starting point for our conversation is to, you know, when we see uh, politicians saying that, you know, uh, this uh, is not happening, uh, that climate change is not happening, that is a statement that is at this point uh, false. And we have to label that person as essentially having stepped outside the bounds of evidence-based discourse. 
we, we cannot start from that starting point is basically my point because that doesn't take into account the power dynamics that we uh, confront either as scientists uh, or as historians. And in my case, historians who deal with uh, not climate change denial, but denial of uh, genocide in, in uh, Bosnia. Yeah, let me take the, um, the climate change example a bit further, because this is something that I think now is better understood, but it's, it's easy to forget where we were not that long ago, where you still had uh, people going on TV, especially on American media, but also in European media, to essentially debate uh, climate change. And often it would be like one scientist versus some random person or that sort of thing. And it really, what this obfuscates is that it makes the, it's almost the argument being made is that if only we can debunk what they're saying, maybe then we can convince, if not them, but the people who are listening to them. And I'm not saying that's not part of it, but what that obfuscates rather kind of notoriously is the explicit role of, for example, the fossil fuel industry in promoting certain discourses that we know they knew, now we know because it's been very well documented, but it it was never about whether they personally knew or not. It was about they knew and they wanted to actively fight back against any efforts to uh, basically phase them out because it was in their best interest not to do so. And with when it comes to uh, Bosnia, obviously my, my reference, I will reference what I know most, which is Lebanon and to, to slightly lesser extent Syria. It's always been situations where I have I, I explain what's happening in Lebanon and I'm okay with doing that. That's part of what I do. But then some of the questions makes it sound as if what is happening in Lebanon is only happening there or could only happen there. And the sort of slightly funny thing is that I mostly work in English and so I'm familiar with the US context enough and at least to commentate and with the UK context and often Americans or Brits don't see how weird their countries look like for too many other people and it's it's the same thing the, the main difference is that for the most part they get to tell their own stories because they have the resources for it and they get to ignore to some extent how or what other people think of them. Like at the end of the day, what the average European thinks of the average American doesn't matter that much in American politics. Mm -hmm. But what the average American, when they ever do think about Lebanon, thinks about Lebanon can actually impact Lebanon for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is, this is a, among the many power differences that I can see, especially when I read your essay, that fact, it's not that the fact checking in of itself doesn't matter. It's more that there's, there are different issues there as well. Another one, just to quickly add to that as well, is the pace of things. Like we, we now know, we, I think it's called the bullshit asymmetry principle. Like we know how this works. Like, you know, fake news and bullshit and all of that spreads much faster than you have time to sit down and fact check and make sure that your fact checks is, is like well sourced and everything because they don't have the same limitations and so it becomes in that sense it becomes an infrastructural problem like social media you know etc etc so just wanted to add that basically yeah you know that's like we could unpack that into like a couple of different <laughs> questions and I, I i i uh maybe i'll just say one thing and then we can return to this uh asymmetry between the periphery and uh places that are seen as exceptional or aberrations i can talk about that separately and it's something that I think 
also has to do with what uh, I said about, you know, Yasin Hadzaleh had said earlier. But let me just first say, since you had mentioned climate change, honestly, I wasn't really, uh, I didn't come with a set of notes. This is a kind of like an informal conversation, but I'm thinking about it. Um, and it's not a new connection to make uh, between, let's say, Holocaust denial and climate change denial. Uh, I, I remember years ago, George Mumpio had written an essay or something like this, or maybe I'm misremembering, but uh, essentially making uh, the argument that we have to label climate change denier, uh, deniers what they are, which is deniers and not skeptics, which is their preferred words, or critical thinkers, or uh, all of these kind of euphemisms uh, contrarians use to kind of ha uh, camouflage this. But I will say this, this is one of the things that I keep thinking about, uh, about denial, more general, uh, I think this comes through often in even in Holocaust denial, but I think in it takes us, this is where I think climate change denial is different. Uh, if you think about Holocaust denial, uh, the way like people like Deborah Lipstadt have written about it, uh, it's a movement, it's not like a lone wolf kind of thing. Uh, there's clearly a coordinated effort. Um, it, it, it's acting uh, out of a position of uh, feeling threatened, you know, like the, that, that it's, a, it's, def, it's in some sense uh, defensive against the establishment of facts um, in this case. But I, what I keep thinking about is that um, the true aims of denial are often camouflaged. Uh, you know, the tactics we know are, are familiar with, like it's to sow confusion, it's to um, say, well, it's a very complex issue that uh, is murky, there's a lot of gray areas, uh, there's a lot of disagreement and... Uh, it appears that all sides have something, a kernel of truth to them, right? So you can't really say what's wrong or right, or maybe everybody is a little bit right and a little bit wrong and things like this. We know the tactics, but I think the objectives are often camouflaged. And I think this is what you had mentioned about the fossil fuel industry. You know, when politicians lie about climate change, they don't say, you know, that this is a message that is essentially sponsored to you by the fossil fuel industry. Uh, that's what I mean by camouflaged. And I think that's the same uh, in different ways with other forms of denial. Uh, I think where climate change is different is that, and I think you know one of the running threads, I guess, of this conversation is power relations. Um, in the case of, let's say, uh, Holocaust denial or genocide denial now in Bosnia, is that there is a power imbalance in which denialists are acting out of being uh, not so much cornered, but they feel that their ideology is threatened. Uh, I think climate change deniers also feel that their ideology is threatened, but I think this is where the power balance is different. They are often the ones who are in charge of states, in charge of corporations, in charge of uh, massive you know, efforts to preserve uh, the current way that we are living and exploiting uh, natural resources so that it's not uh, it's not quite the same you know i think i see a lot of similarities between uh genocide denial and, and climate change denial but i think in the realm of uh, power relations if there is a slightly different dynamic there i would just say that and then we can talk about the other things that you had said also about lebanon and uh, periphery etc 
No, for sure. And I mean, and anyway, it, it links to the next question, which was about, or actually, let, let's let me backtrack a bit because there was this other question I want to ask first. When, um, let's say, you if you get the meet, let's say what was happening last year, and then you get a media inquiry and tell you, hey, as a historian, can you explain what's going on? Let's say you respond to that email and you tell them this is X, Y, and Z. This is what's going on. What usually happens after that? Like, is it they they would take a quote that just fits within the piece anyway? Or would they change the piece if they feel like the answer that you gave them is not what was fitting in the piece? You know, walk us through, it doesn't have to be a specific example, but walk us through why essentially, uh, or what happens in, in that process of translation, if I want to put it that way, between a historian and a media outlet whose audience are not historians. Yeah, that's a... Uh... That's a big problem in, I think, uh, public history. Uh, and I think as a historian of the Balkans, uh, I've had different experiences. Some, I have to say, very positive working with media um, uh, outlets or journalists. Uh, so I do, it's not like I have a, a, a grudge. In fact, I have a lot of respect for investigative journalists and, and I feel like uh, uh, Historians have a lot to learn from them uh, and vice versa. But I, I have to say, kind of, just kind of walk, you said walk us through, uh, I guess some of the common uh, assumptions that I run into as a historian of the Balkans is about the history of this region. And one is, I think, pretty straightforward. I think this is probably pretty familiar to maybe your listeners or anybody who knows anything a bit about uh, the Balkans in sort of more critical academic setting. Uh, and I think that's kind of a variation on the Orientalist stereotype of the unchanging East. You know, in the Balkan case, there's the assumption that uh, the Balkans have always been a place of division and conflict. And that's even the word Balkanization expresses that. And in line with that view, any conflict in Bosnia is assumed to be having deep roots or having being deep. Uh, and not to go back to that, since you mentioned that, uh, you know, headlines like Bosnia on the brink or Lebanon on the brink. You don't even have to say uh, on the brink of what, because everyone knows it's uh, on the brink of war or something, you know, it's never like the brink of greatness <laughs> or anything positive. So that's like one thing that you run into. That's an assumption. Uh, but the other thing that I wanted to highlight, uh, and I think this really gets into some parallels that I, uh, that, that, or maybe overlaps is not so much parallels. But I think this notion of a long and continuous history partly matches what nationalists want to do with history. And in Bosnia, nationalists, especially, I think, in this is especially evident in Republika Srpska, but I think it's a wider problem. Uh, they insist, the nationalists insist on this notion that their group uh, and therefore their state uh, are the products of a long and deep history. You know, that, that, it starts off somewhere in antiquity. And uh, even if your state is founded like two years ago, it's the product of a thousand years or more, at least. Uh, so in my essay, <clears throat> I wanted to especially focus on that nationalist idea uh, and its implications for the public life of history, um, especially how certain histories are erased and silenced and, so, and how others are blown up into enormous proportions. And I think you see that in Republika Srpska, which is like a, a case study that I take. It's not, doesn't represent all of Bosnia, 
uh, it's really one half, uh, less than one half of Bosnia uh, territorially, but it's something that I wanted to zoom in on in this article. Yeah, you know, you say it's less than one half, and I remember recently I was looking at the map and I was surprised that it was that big. In my mind, I always uh, pictured like it's this tiny enclave that for various reasons the Dayton Accord, they kind of, uh, you know, wanted to appease uh, one of the nationalists or what have you, but it's actually a quite sizable proportion of, of, of like Bosnia. Um, I guess like for, for me, the Lebanon parallel there, and it is different. I mean, every all contexts are different, but because sectarianism is the big buzzword and sectarianism is, um, or political confessionalism or what have you is, it is the way the Lebanese government operates, or at least one of the ways the Lebanese government operates. But arguably, it's not really the main way. Uh, the main way is so broad, or not so broad, but like so um, common around the world that it sometimes doesn't deserve a mention. So, for example, the main way the Lebanese government operates is through a capitalist framework, or the main way the Lebanese government operates is through a patriarchal framework. And that's it's such a common thing around the world that it doesn't often doesn't deserve like special attention. So what we end up focusing on are the thing that makes it, you know, have a, a different flavor almost like, OK, it has these things in common, but there's this other thing about it. But what often gets um, erased uh, and, you know, common, like what's f frequently erased is that these sectarian parties, for example, that in theory are are supposed to be opposed to one another, regularly make deals with one another and regularly build coalitions with one another and the coalitions change and whatnot. And it's simply not sufficient to say, well, they did this because they are Shias or they did this because they're Sunnis or they did this because they're Maronites. But it's 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 deeper than that. Oh, it's shallower than that. It's actually not much deeper. It's the interests align in a certain way and they change every now and then, blah, blah, blah. But that's a different story than just saying ancient hatreds and, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I, I see some parallels in Bosnia with that as well. Um, I think one of the things that's kind of said about Bosnia is that uh, the, the end of the war uh, with the Dayton Peace Accords froze the situation and that this peace is like a frozen conflict. And I think, you know... It, it's not necessarily untrue. I think that there's elements of that that are definitely true for even today, but especially I think in 1995, that's true. Um, but we're talking right now in 2022, you know, it's a lot different. Uh, and I think calling Bosnia like a frozen conflict and assuming that it's the same as it was in the 1990s is wrong, uh, not only in terms of like the politicians, but I think more kind of like in terms of what you are talking about this post-war period generated its own new patterns that didn't exist before the war, you know, in socialist Yugoslavia, that didn't exist during the war, uh, that really you can't uh, assume to be an expression of like Serb or Croat or Bosniak outlook or mentality, but that, that, are, that are product of this very specific um, setup that, that was in Bosnia took shape in the Dayton Peace Accords and that establishes certain incentives for a kind of, you know, I, I don't want, you know, sectarian nationalist. I mean, they, these are all uh, uh, 
hard to define con concepts that, that in, in a short time, but that uh, basically are incentivized in the way that the country is set up. And I do see, see that as one of the parallels between uh, Lebanon and Bosnia. Yeah, indeed. And obviously, I'll, I'll bring up the episode I did with Ida Hozic on, on this very topic, because we found a lot of parallels between Bosnia and Lebanon. And the idea of this episode isn't now, it's not just going to repeat some of the, the parallels and differences and whatnot, although I, I can do this probably for hours. But it's just interesting to me that um, we, we, we're we still at a point where I have to explain to people, or I mean, not every people, but like often I have to explain the difference between, uh, yes, of course, something is complicated, like Lebanon is complicated, like many countries, um, there are complexities to the situation, but these complexities are not necessarily that different from your own complexities. They just, they have, the details are different, but the overall, overall patterns can be f familiar, at least, if not similar. At the same time, this doesn't mean that we will flatten everything and pretend that the same problems in the US are the same problems in Lebanon, because I think this gets to a point where we end up flattening even further and kind of cheapening the conversation. But, but yeah, it's, it's just one of those things I have in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think listening to you talk about that uh, kind of brought up a couple of ideas in my mind. And I, I guess, you know, places like Bosnia or Lebanon or uh, that, that aren't, that, that, that I think often come up, as I said earlier, when there is a crisis. And that's when the attention of the media or academia or even politics, you know, then suddenly uh, whatever right-wing, left-wing publications kind of have to say something about it and they fit it in. Uh, and I think Bosnia is kind of like a good place to think about uh, that kind of trap of exceptionalism, uh, that, which is, I think, the idea that things that happen in the periphery uh, are somehow either derivatives of or aberrations from the Western norm. You know, uh, And I think that's, to me, one of the things that I try to think about in this piece. Um, and, and I think it requires sort of setting some context uh, for the 1990s. Um, and I guess one of the things I'm thinking about is like in 1992, let's say, uh, the war in Bosnia broke out. And I think it was in the same year. I didn't look it up, but I know the essay came out in 89, but I think the book came out uh, in 1992. Francis Fukuyama publishes uh, his book, The End of History, which mm -hmm. became a pretty pervasive 1990s view that history was always progressing toward greater freedom, uh, universal human rights, you know, all the goodness. <laughs> and, you know, the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union collapsed without a massive war. Of course, there were conflicts, but it didn't engulf the, the world. Uh, the EU was expanding, uh, unifying, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it's, you know, looking back, it's kind of a pretty simplified, or not so simplified, but it's kind of like a, vulgar Hegelian narrative, uh, complete with like a political teleology that culminates with Western values as enshrined in the EU and the US uh, having these things and the rest of the world trying to compete with them or trying to uh, emulate them. And that was very popular in the 1990s. Uh, and I think it remained more or less intact in different ways up until really uh, the rise of Trump and Brexit uh, that served as a very rude awakening that this is you know, not the end of history that we were told. But let me just set back to, to the 1990s. You know, uh, that's when I was growing up. Uh, 
for a long time, you know, uh, uh, this is for me growing up uh, with the war in Bosnia, parallel to this narrative, it really made me question the positions from which you narrate certain things. It really made me wonder about vantage points in history to wonder about perspectives, uh, including my own perspective on, on history. It's kind of like, you know, like uh, one of these things that it was very formative. Uh, it made me ask who determines what is and what isn't the so-called main subject of historical narratives. Uh, who determines what counts as zeitgeist, like the spirit of history, and what is supposedly, you know, a less significant event or a process in world history? Uh, and what kind of theories uh, or histories could we articulate from places that are relegated to the periphery? And to be honest, already, if you're sort of asking those kinds of questions, that puts you at odds uh, with how much of you know, with large parts of uh, Western academia and how they perceive places like Bosnia or Lebanon, you know, like if you're in the periphery, the flow of knowledge and expertise is implicit, but it's also pretty clear, like you're supposed to flow, it's supposed knowledge or whatever theory is supposed to flow from the West and locals are going to somehow absorb it or be improved or enlightened by it. Uh, and I'm caricaturing only a little bit because I've seen it in Bosnia especially I think in the first post-war decade, maybe less so today. But you see this, like, um, I can't tell you how many EU-sponsored seminars on reconciliations I've seen. My God, Joey, it's like, <laughs> it's like here's the deputy mayor of Munster with a lecture, you know, why can't you Bosnians be friends? Or like, uh, why can't you be more like France and Germany at the end of World War II? Uh, or my favorite is like when, uh, and everybody says this, like I think Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State said this as well um, at some point about Bosnia. Don't argue over history, leave history to the historians. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, I don't like, we have it all figured out and you locals, uh, wherever you are, take notes and learn. And I think it's only with the rise of Trump and Brexit and especially with Russia's now second war in Ukraine, that this self-confidence has been sh shaken. And, you know, I think maybe people are saying, hey, our conversations don't need to be in this tutoring mode. Uh, God forbid we have something to learn from each other uh, <laughs> in, in this way. So uh, anyway, uh, maybe, maybe that's not a direct way to answer your question, but it, it is something that, I, that I've been thinking about. No, it is. And for me, I, I, I've been giving this example more and more because I feel it just says a lot. Like if we want to argue as to which event or among, uh, let's say an, an event that was extremely objectively impactful over, for lack of a better term, world history or world politics or whatever, in the past decade or so, I would argue that the Syrian revolution is one of the major ones. And I I can easily make the argument for it. I can mention the refugee crisis, which obviously galvanized a lot of far-right reactionaries in Europe. I can think of the deal between Turkey and the EU, which in many ways changed the direction of where uh, Turkey's own relationship with the EU could have been going elsewhere. 
I can think of the role of Iran. I can think of what is happening in Lebanon. I can think of later on the role of Russia, which in many ways precipitated what Russia would end up doing in Ukraine, which then in and of itself becomes uh, this uh, more or less recognized quote-unquote world event, uh, which it is. My argument isn't that this isn't a world event. My argument is that this other thing is also a world event. I mean, we should question also what world event even means. But, yeah. So my 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 kind of my take with this is just that um, even though Syria objectively and maybe one can hope that like in 50 years or whatnot, it ends up having the recognition it deserves. But whatever, that's that's not the concern now in the present time. At least it's not my concern. Um, like objectively, you can make the argument that here is why and you give like 50 bullet points as to why the Syrian revolution has been extremely impactful on the world at the same time it is simply not treated as such and what ends up happening is that these things end up always taking quote unquote the world or i'm going to be specific here taking europe by surprise for example <laughs> and we we know this like now we know that basically the eu's only real politics when it comes to most of the middle east and slightly exaggerating with this but at least one of the most consistent ones is just how to reduce refugee flow. And so because of that, and <laughs> refugee flow, because as the assumption is that everyone will immediately want to go to the north, of course. Mm-hmm. But the so what ends up happening is that the priority is no longer even pretending or paying lip service to democracy or to whatever, to human rights, but actually just quote-unquote statecraft. And we're seeing mm-hmm. this now with Syria a lot. The priority isn't, anything to do with Syrian rights, like the rights of Syrian or like the human rights of Syrians, but everything to do with quote unquote stability. And stability in Syria quite literally means gulags. Stability in Syria means death on an industrial scale and bombings and torture and forced and forced disappearances and whatnot. But that doesn't matter as much on a quote unquote global scale as long as it doesn't leave the border of Syria, or if it does leave the border of Syria, that it doesn't go too far away, i.e. it doesn't get too close to the West, and in this case, specifically Europe in this case. And so this is sort of the argument I, I sometimes make, and I feel like even while I'm making it, you know, certain people will believe me, <laughs> like certain people will agree, and other people will maybe, you know, pause for a few seconds or a few minutes, uh, agree in theory, but at the end of the day, because it doesn't um, materially, not, that's not even the case, but because it doesn't matter to the disc, to like dis- discursively matter, or I don't know what's the term I'm looking for, but because it doesn't impact how we and we quote unquote, like people in Europe and or the US, whatever, end up talking about it or talking about themselves more importantly, like the, the link between the scene revolution and Brexit or the link between scene revolution and the rise of the far right. That's not just, oh, the brown people came over and the racists started getting scared. Therefore, we need to push away the brown people in order to, for the racists to be less scared, you know? Because <laughs> that, that's as good as it gets with the discourse these days. But yeah. Yeah, man, that, I, I, that's uh, not to uh, kind of like uh, uh, repeat what you said about Syria, because I think I totally agree with it. But I think for me, one of the things uh, thinking about that is uh, that that really came through. Uh, and it took a long time for me to realize this uh, really in graduate school, reading more anthropologists and historians, to be honest. Um, and, and it has to do with uh, 
narrative uh, about how we tell stories about so supposedly the history of the world, um, and all which entails uh, not just narrative strategies, but also uh, your own position, uh, your own vantage point from which you tell uh, histories. Uh, and I think that's not necessarily uh, that there isn't like one correct uh, narrative. There isn't one correct position. What I find disturbing is this idea that uh, we all are supposed to assume uh, this essentially Eurocentric uh, worldview, uh, you know, and that is already kind of preformed for you. Uh, that once you absorb it, once you are educated into it, and and uh, sort of really deeply accept it, that the world is supposed to start making sense to you. Uh, it doesn't, you know. Uh, uh, and I think for me, uh, growing up with the Bosnian War really made it, me aware of like how. Uh, even though it was a big event for Europe, especially, but for the U.S. for you know a brief time in the middle of the 1990s as well with the uh, 1995 and, and 1999, uh, but I think it, it, it you you it quickly kind of the focus moves on to something else, the next crisis or whatever, and the narrative is uninterrupted. Like your your periphery is absorbed into this larger narrative of. Uh, you know, the increasing of human rights uh, around the globe, this kind of, as I said, like a vulgar Hegelian end of history kind of narrative that uh, really predominated in, in the 1990s and only recently has, I think, been kind of crashed wide open. And I think there's now uh, a search for some other uh, narrative to, to tell. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, it's interesting to think through that in light of Syria uh, in light of forgotten places like Bosnia as well. And I would, again, plug uh, what, you, what you mentioned, the conversation with Aida Hozic, I think that was really brilliant. Um, so maybe I'll just stop there. Like the Bosnia is not the, you know, I, uh, my effort in trying to think about these places is uh, really to see and question from what perspectives we tell history uh, as a historian, I'm interested in that question, but all, I think it's broader than that is how we see the world really. Uh, and to question our own assumptions and see where they come from, because they all have histories that are embedded and we don't need to reject them. We don't need to a priori think that they are negative, positive, anything, but we do have to think critically and we have to think for ourselves about them. Uh, and I guess that's kind of like the way I approach it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks a lot for, for that answer as well. I obviously completely agree. And one thing that, um, well, it's, I mean, it is related anyway. I mean, everything we're talking about is related anyway, but um, I'm, I'm interested about two things. And I'll start with like the first question, um, which is like, we we now know from many examples, and I I think more people are aware of this if, for example, they are familiar with uh, the kind of like the anti-trans, like the transphobic um, uh, discourses that we're now seeing popping up in the U.S. and at, at such a speed, um, uh, it's happening. And we can maybe, as part of my hope, that we our memory isn't too short, that we can remember that not that long ago they were talking the same kind of um, uh, online, not necessarily just online, but especially online kind of ecosystems or media media systems. Uh, essentially bubbles of uh, right wing and far right and whatnot you know they were uh, 
using very similar discourses against the so-called caravans coming from Latin America and Muslims in general, maybe be, before that and after that and during that, it's kind of an ongoing thing. And different groups of people that are, uh, for the most part, minorities um, in a certain context. And the term minority is problematic, but I'm just using it as, just, as a shorthand here. Um, we we kind of I, I'm hoping that more people understand that there is a direct connection between um, dehumanizing a group of people, and at this end, so that's one one aspect of it, and also that it is linked to um, treating the people dehumanizing them or treating the quote unquote arguments being made by those dehumanizing them as if it is a position worthy of to some extent understanding or is even respect to some to some other extent depending on the situation so the example i'm thinking of is when i think of um we we saw it a bit with russia and ukraine right i mean i think the the brutality of the invasion was on to such an extent to such an extreme extent that the kind of putinist or let's say, light <laughs> people who would not call themselves pro-Putin, but would say things like, I don't like Putin, but... And so after that, they follow up with the, the apologia. <laughs> um, those those folks, I feel, did not get the platform they probably would have had otherwise, but they're not too far away. And I think that the discourse that they would be... Um, and I'll, I'll explain why I made the jump between like you know transphobia and there and uh, in the U.S. and Putin in Ukraine. What I'm trying to say with all of this, so I don't ramble too much, is that there is a tendency within. Um, I'm going to be very vague about this, but within like politics, within media in general, to treat those uh, with a very clear intent to do harm, as uh, as deserving of equal attention, attention span, or understanding, not attention, understanding as those that they are uh, harming. And I feel there is something to be said there, and I kind of try to make the link a bit clunkily, but there is a link between this desire or this need to appease, to basically don't, let, let's not rock the boat too much. Like, mm -hmm. let's hope that we can wish Putin away, basically, which is, I think, half of the EU's policy at this point. Yeah. You know, th those tendencies... Or let's hope that if we uh, calm down the transphobes, like if we uh, go their ways, their ways somehow, you know, maybe we, we maybe we don't say transphobia is good, but maybe we start understanding. Oh well, I get their position or whatnot. Maybe by doing that we calm them down, despite the fact that time and time again we see that what it actually does is just it solidifies their their position. It makes them more extreme mm -hmm. in many ways. Absolutely, I, I think you know. Each of those issues, to me, just kind of stepping back and thinking about it, uh, and I guess you know, uh, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm uh, too many of my examples come from history, but I, I do think about uh, what you said uh, as having important historical, not only precedents, but I think what you're pointing to is this logic of, uh, on the one hand, wishing things away. You know, I wish that it wasn't that Putin didn't invade in Ukraine, or maybe he's more reasonable than we give him credit for. Uh, or maybe there's a, you know, we haven't really thought about it from his perspective, like truly, truly. Um, and same with uh, transphobes and, and, and uh, anti-trans discourses. Uh, but I think the kind of underlying logic there 
often tends to be, and I think you're right to call it essentially a variant on appeasement, uh, because I think in the interwar period, you had, uh, you know, obviously a huge surge of anti-Semitism um, that was vehement, violent, uh, uh, and, and ubiquitous. Um, but then you also had, you know, if you study the discourses of the time, and I, you know, obviously I didn't come prepared with notes. I do have it somewhere. I wish I could remember who said it. But one of the French politicians at the time uh, basically said, you know, like, uh, his platform was like, you know, we don't need this kind of virulent uh, Nazi kind of anti-Semitism. What we really need is a more moderate kind of anti-Semitism that is suited to French circumstances. And, you know, the history of our nation is not the same as the German. But this is the kind of, it's not just a slippery slope, but it's this idea that you can compromise with an extreme position uh, that, that, that is truly outside the bounds of what should be uh, acceptable discourse that, you know, to deny someone's existence or to, um, to, to really wish harm on them or to organize violence against them. Those are not positions that you can compromise with. Like, well, let's just hurt them a little bit. Like, how about that? Um, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I guess to me, that's the underlying logic of appeasement. And let me just, uh, mm-hmm. since I, we have this essay on Bosnia in the background uh, as an occasion for our, our freewheeling conversation here. Um, but I, I do think that uh, I see it in Bosnia, this kind of, um, you, you, you termed it, I think, wishing things away. And I definitely see this in Bosnia, Joey. It's like, um, you have this Republika Srpska entity. I can talk about it more uh, now. Uh, but if you, yeah, maybe it is a good time to kind of just very briefly talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, so like, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I know it feels like jumping around, but basically uh, we have this political entity and it's a place that has a really recent history. Uh, it's called Republika Srpska or the, you know, uh, Republic of Srpska. It's a very awkward translation uh, in English. Uh, it doesn't really exist. That's how it's called in the Dayton Agreement as well. It's created in 1992 at the beginning of the war uh, in Bosnia by Radovan Karadzic and Radko Mladic. So these are hardline Bosnian Serb nationalists who seized on Yugoslavia's dissolution as their chance to establish an ethnically pure nation state. And they were backed by Slobodan Milosevic, uh, and also by the remnants of the Yugoslav National Army. And they went on, uh, these founders of Republika Srpska, to pursue their aim of creating you know, basically a ethnically pure statelet uh, by targeting non-Serbs. And that meant primarily Bosniaks or Bosnian Muslims uh, and Croats in the areas that they controlled. And that was really substantial. At some point, it was like 70% of Bosnia was controlled by the, the Serbian uh, army. And in the end, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the Republika Srpska survived, but the founders of Republika Srpska were convicted. So what happened in 1995 is the Dayton Agreement comes along. Uh, Radovan Karadzic and Radko Mladic uh, are indicted. They're later, this long story about them, but they're indicted, they go into hiding. They're arrested eventually uh, and convicted in The Hague. Uh, beyond reasonable doubt on charges and retried, you know, appealed on charges of crimes against humanity and genocide. And 
that's not a history that I kind of made up. Like if you read the transcripts, if you read the thousands of pages assembled by the ICTY, that's what happened with Republika Srpska. There is no uh, other way to narrate its founding and its existence other than creation through genocide uh, and crimes against humanity. Uh, and again, this, I emphasize this. This is the war in Bosnia is bigger than this. I'm only talking about the Republika Srpska, but if you talk about Republika Srpska as an entity, this is the facts that they, that we're dealing with. Uh, and of course, there were other things that went on in the 1990s. Uh, but if we're talking about this place, uh, its leaders were convicted, but their creation, Republika Srpska, was to remain, and it's given this status of basically autonomous entity. It's 49% of the territory of Bosnia within uh, the independent state of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So the other entity is composed, is called federation, composed of federated cantons. And that's where we get to the situation where like we have this entity uh, that's led by Milorad Dodik, uh, who's like this, you know, blustery populist politician uh, who portrays himself as the guardian of this wartime legacy. And even though initially he's like, he emerged as a liberal alternative to Karadzic, um, Dodik became really adamant and he kind of figured out that his big card is to push Republika Srpska further in this like hardline nationalist direction by denying that it was founded on genocide, denying that uh, the founders of Republika Srpska, Karadzic, Mladic, Plašić, all those people, that they committed genocide and claiming eventually that the entity will soon have its own army, treasury, and other institutions. And he can only get away with that because he has the support from, well, first of all, Putin in Russia, but more importantly, neighbor, you know, in, in, the, in the sort of neighborhoods uh, of, of Bosnia and in their region, uh, he gets support from uh, Vucic, Alexander Vucic, this autocrat in Serbia, and from also, and this I think really flies under the radar, from people like Viktor Orban, in Hungary, within the EU. What I mean to say is that Republika Srpska has people who make excuses for it within and support it within the EU. Orban is, is probably the most mm -hmm. you know, obvious one, but there are others. So let me just go back to what you had earlier said. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen this like a lot among academics, like who, and I mentioned this earlier, like who come, uh, Western academics who will come to Bosnia and be like, but why can't you all reconcile you know, why can't Bosnia move beyond its uh, wartime past? Uh, and it's almost like wishing that the genocide didn't happen and that Republika Srpska wasn't founded on genocide. And you know what? I wish it wasn't either, but it was. Like, we just have to kind of confront this. And wishful thinking, uh, like, what if Dodik isn't really a hardline nationalist. What if we, what if we kind of treat him with kid gloves, uh, and, and 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 give in to some of his demands? Because all sides uh, have something wrong and something right with them, and we can just compromise. And I think to me that's this kind of like uh, outlandish, slippery logic. Because here we're dealing with a person who has decided uh, full well. I mean, he he came out earlier like in 2007, and said, you know, we know that genocide in Srebrenica happened. 
and then turned around and said like, no, it didn't happen. Uh, and the only reason why he did that is because he uh, realized that that's his tickets to this kind of like whipping up this particular fear uh, and, and kind of populist outrage that keeps him in power. Uh, so that it's really staked out a position that's detached at this point from, uh, from evidence, from facts, from uh, both in terms of the past, but also like clearly that it's heading in a direction where like this is going to be an entity that's really unhinged. I mean, it's, it's, not, um, it's not a pretty picture. And pretending that it's otherwise, like that it's more moderate or maybe things weren't so bad in the 1990s. But what if, what if you guys, all of you, just agreed not to talk about it? When you have like this extremist in the room who is the president of this entity, screaming otherwise, I think that's not the most appropriate response. Uh, I mean, it's obviously not an appropriate response. And this sort of brings me to the other thing that, again, the I mentioned Syria before, that if, if, you, if someone wanted to see that this could lead to bigger things and it's going to affect the only places that matter <laughs> to world politics, which is like Europe and the US or whatever, uh, you could have already reached that conclusion in 2011, if not maybe 2012, but it just didn't matter discursively. And here what I see, and this is kind of like my just, you know, observer status of just following a number of Bosnians online and kind of seeing certain things and doing my own research or what have you. But I'm sort of seeing is something similar happening in the sense that the EU tends to be, and I'm just focusing on the EU because I'm based in Europe, not that I, I think is the only thing that matters but um, has a tendency of not dealing with a reality until reality sort of just is too big to handle. And then when it does handle, as you see, when it does happen, as you see with Russia and Ukraine, they still find ways, many of them anyway, still find ways to kind of push it away and wish it away. Mm -hmm. My, so the transition I wanted to make here is that you mentioned Guardian, like this is how Dodik uh, describes himself, like he's the Guardian of of whatever, Serbian ultranationalism, whatever. And the whole being a guardian of something is something I've been quite interested by in the past few years uh, for all the wrong reasons. Um, namely that like, obviously this is how Orban describes, uh, you know, the guardian of Christian Europe. Right. And, and, in what kind of concerns me isn't that mm. uh, this is how someone who is obviously right wing or far right talks. What concerns me is that it is not that different from, I mean, it is different. There is there is a difference. I'm not gonna say it's the same because I feel like that would also be flattening certain differences. But it's not as different as it should be from um, what someone like Ursula von der Leyen talk, how she talks about, how she has talked about uh, non-white migrants and non-white refugees. That, for example, uh, now it's kind of a blip in in people's memories because it happened around the same time as COVID was becoming more and more prominent in the news. But in early 2020, she described Greece pushing away migrants and refugees from Turkey because Turkey, quote unquote, opened the gates, which is another thing that we can talk about. Like, this is how Turkey does things, but it's, it's not that important here. Um, she described uh, Greece doing that as Aspida, like Greece was being the shield of Europe is how she described it. And there is this idea like you're always protecting the fortress effectively that that it's a fort it's a metaphor of a fortress you're always protecting it from the invaders and this is something that's extremely common in 
uh, I do cultural studies, and so I look, <laughs> I, I watch movies, and I pretend that I'm studying them. But I, I, it's something that's very common in in movies and series and anime. And uh, Attack mm. of the Titans is a popular one where they're quite literally a fortress, and you have the invading whatever titans. I guess they would be called mm. coming. You know, this metaphor, this idea, or World War Z, for example, the zombies coming in, or is this this foreigner, this other, is always otherized. Like this is a process. And the awkward segue between uh, that and I think more recent events is that I think we've already gotten to the point where the things that in the past would be sort of difficult to ignore are now being ignored, as in they have become whitewashed and they have become normalized. And what worries me is obviously that this is never the final step of not that there's a, you know, linear framework to these things, but like more or less that it's heading in a certain direction. What worries me is that it's heading in a certain direction and sort of fears that not that many people are aware that it's it's heading in a certain direction, but we're not the ones who are driving the bus. You know, like we're not the ones mm-hmm. who are, but we are on yeah. the bus, so we don't have a choice. And I, I'm thinking of the, we're recording this on what, the 18th of July and like what, a couple of weeks ago, there was the massacre in, in no, uh, end of Ju- June, there was a massacre in Melilla, northern, uh, well, it's an, a Spanish enclave in in effectively northern Morocco, uh, of like, I, I think 37 people were killed by, by the border guards. And this has, it's a blip in the news. It's barely, it's barely right. something that now counts as, as newsworthy. And I feel like this normalization has been coming. You know, it's been happening for a long time now. And it does play to what we're talking, it does, I mean, uh, play into what we're talking about now, because obviously, even though they wouldn't want to say this out loud, there is a lot of Islamophobia that's normalized and just taken for granted when when discourses around Bosnia, when Bosnia is even in the news in the first place or even talked about in the first place, this is part of the uh, part of the underlying narrative that ultimately we quote unquote have more in common with the Dodic or the Serbian dude whose name I'm forgetting or Putin or what have you than we do with you know the average bosnian muslim or that we do with the, uh, the average turk or the average syrian or the average what have you and when we get to that point i feel like it, arguably we're already at that point but if we get at that point even more uh, you know explicitly i feel like this is where the dark underbelly of european politics starts coming back yeah. again <laughs> yeah man yeah that's uh yeah, I think part of what, I mean, I have a sort of a lot of uh, things that, that I could say of trying to to uh, uh, refocus on, on one part of it. Uh, I guess it, it goes back to this idea of uh, guarding or defending Europe. And I think the, or sometimes explicitly Christian Europe, uh, especially, you know, like people like Dodik talk about that uh, very explicitly. Uh, or Orban, for that matter. So uh, what I think the linkage that you made there is really important is that it's not just uh, leaders of uh, Serbia and Russia that support Dodik and uh, similar uh, hardline nationalists in Croatia or the Cro- among the Bosnian Croats. Uh, and one of the reasons they don't get immediately sort of discredited or condemned in Europe is because on some level... Uh, the European project is happy to say like, oh, you know, this is, you stepped out of bounds when you denied the genocide in Srebrenica. But, you know, the pushbacks uh, that are happening among the Croatian border, 
yeah, we're just going to like turn a blind eye on that. Um, and, and in all these ways that in other ways in which Dodik expresses or Croat nationalists express not just Islamophobia, but this extremist anti-refugee discourse, uh, really they ca- that, that, that there's a kind of uh, space in which the European discourse and silence uh, it acts as a, a permission to take that uh, anti-refugee rhetoric further and to enact violence. I mean, just yesterday, uh, one of the Serbian prime ministers, Volin, uh, he literally said uh, uh, things like, you know, Serbia is not a parking lot for, uh, I forget what he, like how he said for scum or like a- Asian or African scum. Or like it, It's like really crazy uh, extremist ideas. And this is like a minister in the Serbian government who uh, paraded before cameras like before people that are on the ground with their hands on their heads uh, with refugees. So what I'm trying to say, just kind of, you know, since you brought up uh, Melilla and, uh, you know, all of this context around the Mediterranean and, of course, the Balkan migrant route is inseparable from that as well. Uh, These are pretty brutal regimes, honestly, that um, aim to keep out uh, and I don't think it's just Islamophobia, though there's a long history there that I can talk about in a moment, but it's really uh, kind of become racialized to keep, uh, in this current moment, uh, black and brown people out of Europe. That's like fortress Europe. That's the similarity. Um, but the language is broader. And it can't, you know, once you sort of establish this idea of defending Europe, it's a, it's, it's a very powerful one. It's also a very old one, even though it doesn't mean the same things today as it did 50 years ago, or as it did, whatever, 300 years ago, it meant something different. But the fact that it is a cliche, so to speak, uh, means that it's a notion that you can graft onto uh, some new ideas, that basically you take these earlier ideas of protecting Europe and you can graft them, you can evolve them, you can make them into something new. And here, what I'm thinking about is, I had taught this recently, or I guess last year, maybe not so recent, but anyway, um, I reread the speech that Slobodan Milosevic gave in 1989 uh, for the Battle of Kosovo. Uh, it was the 600th anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo, which took place in 1389, uh, when uh, the Ottoman and the Serbian armies uh, fought in what was essentially a stalemate, but Long story short is that it becomes this defining moment that is later seen as the subjugation of the beginning of the end of the uh, Serbian kingdom and of all the sort of Balkan peoples implicitly uh, from there. And in 1989, Milosevic comes to Kosovo and he, a million people gather, uh, you know, communism is crumbling. He's clearly on the cusp of something new. And he makes this speech. It's an interesting speech. But at the end of it, he explicitly invokes defending Europe in 1989. And he says something like, uh, Serbia didn't just defend itself against the Ottomans slash Turks or whatever. Uh, Serbia also was defending Europe and its religion and its culture. So, and then he says like, in the past there were battles, so there may be battles for us in the future. And this idea of defending Europe 
was really popular among people like Milosevic or Karadzic and the whole Republika Srpska leadership. They often, and, and uh, in Croatia too, it's huge. They often cited the idea of defending Europe in the 1990s. And that had a really far resonance in the 1990s. I don't think that it, it's not something that, that I think is really understudied. How many far right figures at that time um, realized that there is an affinity between what they're saying in places like France or England is being enacted by, in a much more brutal way, uh, by Karadzic and Milosevic. And they can condemn them for saying that, for doing that and say, like, these people are too extreme, they're violent, they're really Balkan, uh, they're not really European, but, you know, let's not uh, condemn them entirely because they're still a part of our Christian European world. And when I say this, this is not like a hyperbole. Uh, Karadzic, when he was charged with genocide uh, in 1985, he went to hiding and remained into hi in hiding until like, I forget, 2008, 2011, I, I can't remember at the moment. Um, and he, in that period, Jean-Marie Le Pen in the late 1990s sought out Radovan Karadzic and met with him while he was sought by the Interpol. And that only came out afterwards, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like this. And the thing is that they had, the thing that they had in common, like why is Le Pen, the father of Marine Le Pen, uh, why is he having this meeting with a wanted criminal? Uh, well, it's this, you know, he, they, they can't say it. This is what I mean about like camouflaging your true, you know, that they can't say it, but the, mm -hmm. the, what they have in common is this idea of defending Europe against Muslims. And even during the war, uh, one French diplomat said, I, I literally, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was like in an article in the New Yorker, we worry more about Muslims than about the Serbs. And that's the idea like that they have in common is, is an enacted. And Jean Baudrillard wrote, uh, you know, the author of uh, Simulation and Simulacra, uh, he wrote a great essay in the 1990s about that affinity. Uh, I wish I, you know, maybe we can put it in the links uh, in the description somewhere, basically about how Milosevic's Serbia is doing the dirty work of defending Europe. And they might get a slap on their hands, but there's like an underlying affinity uh, that Europe shares with extremist nationalists. And I think a critical history of this idea from the 1990s to the present uh, kind of still remains to be written. Um you know, it made me think of the, there's a book, I haven't read it, but the title of that book is a common, is a common phrase that I've, I've come across a number of times in like, I don't know if it's necessarily in Holocaust studies, but let's say in, in Jewish spaces that I, I tend to um, frequent as well from time to time, which is like, people love dead Jews. And in, in the sense that in Europe, I would argue that they're fine, for example, for with commemorating the Srebrenica genocide, they're okay with saying, well, this thing that happened 20 years ago uh, that massacred a number of Muslims, that's a bad thing. But they're only fine with it because these Muslims were already murdered. As in these 8,000 Muslims that were murdered in Srebrenica, for those who don't know, in uh, July, I think, July 1995, um, are dead already you know they're no longer a question quote unquote on us on us in europe they're no longer their 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 bodies are underground they're no longer um 
they can be described. And I was looking up, by the way, what you were talking about the, that Serbian, uh, the Serbian minister. And yes, he's literally standing in front of um, migrants and refugees, and he said, like you know, Serbia, as you said, uh, Serbia is not a parking lot for Asians. Come, that was his uh, his his sentence, and that's at the Serbian uh, Hungarian border. So technically, the yeah. EU the EU border. Um, <laughs> and that yeah. I mean, he could be wearing a Frontex uniform. Exactly. But, yeah. Anyway. He yeah, could be wearing a Frontex universe, uh, uniform, and he could be wearing an o in swastika. And uh, the <laughs> the goal or the the, and I don't mean this to be provocative. I think quite literally, it would look the same. The aesthetics are almost exactly the same. Um, and that sentence, the one I mentioned before, people love the Jews. It, it's the sense that in Europe, especially, but also in the US, but especially in Europe, there isn't there isn't a huge problem with discussing the Holocaust as long as you keep it in the past tense. As long mm -hmm. as you talk about it as something that happened in the past, that could never happen ever again. Nothing like that could ever happen ever again in Europe because we've learned our lesson, because we've said never again a billion times, etc., etc. And as long as we repeat it like a mantra, it becomes it becomes true. You know, as long as we repeat like a mantra, it's never going to happen again. And yet now, of course, I mean, I would never compare anything to the Holocaust because it's on a scale that's, that's virtually unheard of. But mm -hmm. there are elements of this that... I would argue are essentially fascistic. Like again, the Melilla massacre, the what, what uh, you just mentioned, the the, I mean, effectively a selfie. He almost took a selfie in front of those people, uh, that are all, um, um, like how do I say this? Like they have their their head be, be between their their knees, kind of thing, lying on the ground, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, for me, this isn't coming from an, a context in which never again is taken seriously, like if, 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 in which we've actually said never yeah. again. Like for me, this is, again, it's a mantra that we repeat as a way of not having to do the work that we have to do, basically. Um, I guess it's sort of a uh, wrapping up-ish before we get into the book section. You mentioned um, Hannah Arendt, and I, I really think, in, in the essay, I mean, and I really think that she is, uh, and maybe it's kind of unfair as a last question because it's such a big topic, but we'll try our best. Yeah. But yeah, she, ha <laughs> she has this, well, yeah, there's a sentence that you, you mentioned, I think, which is, I'm just going to quote it. Faced with powerful forces that are rewriting the past, historians should rethink their assumptions and pose new questions about the relationship between power and their discipline. So that's kind of like what we, you know, we started with this. And it's kind of the underlying theme of this conversation. But as a way of wrapping up this conversation again, can you discuss how uh, Hannah Arendt's work and, you know, with all of the critiques that also can be made forward, but whatever, like how, 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 which can she help us or people like her help us understand things that the media and politicians and others still don't quite understand. And I'm saying the media, I mean, I'm just being broad on purpose, but like, you know, lots of folks still don't understand when it comes to the relationship between power and, and yeah what we're already talking about basically yeah uh i mean let me just think for a second about uh you know that there you not i don't want to go back to exactly what you had said earlier because even though because i think i would say too much about that commemorative aspect but maybe just to refocus on hannah arendt uh for this essay that i wrote i found it really uh useful to think with her up to a point uh obviously she's a always a brilliant thinker uh, and her essay that really was relevant to this essay that I was thinking of is uh, lying in politics. Well, you know, it's a seminal essay. It 
uh, I had read it in grad school and then like uh, when Trump came along, it kind of in, enjoyed a brief resurgence uh, where people were constantly citing it, you know, and, and, and she's incredibly uh, insightful about uh, talking about how uh, authoritarian and totalitarian regimes have uh, the ability to detach themselves from truth and invent a whole, you know, that lying in politics becomes their entire, uh, uh, you know, raison d'être, like it, it, it's, it's this entire uh, platform on which their the entire world is constructed, right? Um, and then how facts are, but what I find super interesting, you know, people do tend to quote, and especially I think in, under this post-Trump, post-truth era, she's given like this kind of, uh, Arendt is given kind of this pessimistic uh, gloss, like, you know, how hard it is to fight against totalitarian regimes and lying, in, you know, lying politicians and stuff like this. Uh, but I, what I found interesting in, in, when I reread it for this piece, and I reread a couple of other things uh, as well, is how she says actually facts are a lot more resilient that, and I think this is really uh, under uh, uh, underappreciated uh, how despite the amount of lying and in fact the fact of it having to invent an, an alternative world in which Srebrenica didn't happen, right? Uh, or in which the Holocaust or in which the Armenian genocide didn't, ha didn't happen, right? That, that, that's like a, a total... Uh, fantasy unhinged from facts uh but that it that that facts have even in a completely controlled environment have a strange resilience and a flexibility that allows them to be reinserted reasserted and reestablished so that it's actually a battlefield in which we are partaking you know if, if you do care about these issues that it is a field of struggle so to me that was actually a really important part of uh, what she was saying um it, it, it and it is this notion of struggle i think ultimately is that we are engaged in a struggle and that it's not issues that are settled i think this is one mistake that people make a lot about discourses of denial, especially that they assume that because um, facts about the Holocaust, facts about the Armenian genocide uh, have been so painstakingly established that we don't have to worry about denial or that it's a settled issue. I, I think that gets it wrong. I think we have to think about uh, how pervasive attempts to relativize and falsify history are, how we are we are engaged in a struggle in which we have to be alert to these uh, strategies of relativization in which, and I think this goes back to your earlier point, uh, well-meaning intentions of compromise with denialist positions actually allow them more of a platform and dilute our struggle to establish more dignity and, and a, a, a more justice in this, you know, profoundly flawed world. Uh, and one thing, the last thing that I would say, uh, and I think this is, I guess, really more as a historian that I'm speaking about. And, uh, and I know that this is, you know, the, speaking to a, a, probably an audience that uh, is very diverse. And then, and, you know, uh, one thing that I found interesting about Arendt is that she 
makes this comparison uh, implicitly between historians and politicians in the sense that she distrusts them or has an air of suspicion about them because they deal with human affairs and because they're tempted to legitimize their projects, right? And historians are constantly being enlisted to legitimize political projects in, in, in Republika Srpska and in, uh, in any number of places in the United States currently uh, with all these uh, laws banning so-called uh, divisive concepts, et cetera. But that she distrust, she has this sort of like air of suspicion about historians and she almost sees them as uh, a last resort uh, of people who, you know, let's say you falsify history, you rewrite the history of the Holodomor and it didn't happen or that it was, you know, whatever deaths were accidental in Ukraine and that Stalin had nothing to do with it. Um, and that she wants historians at that point to step in with facts, right? That, no, we do have facts that say otherwise, but she doesn't see them as having anything else to say beyond that. And because it, this gets into this kind of polemical, political world, and that's what, where, where the, this distrust comes in. And I think that this is, you know, maybe uh, something that Arendt didn't want to really rethink because it would call into assumption, uh, it would call into question so many of her other assumptions, which is that his history, um, it does not function as an impartial field ever. And I think, you know, that we, we have to start with different set of questions about not just narrative, but about power and the power to tell stories and the power to omit certain things, uh, to erase history. And I think to me, that's where, you know, and the, I guess maybe this is shifting into the book section. Uh, this is really something that I learned much more, not from Hannah Arendt, but from uh, an anthropologist, uh, Jean-Rof Trouillot, who wrote a book called Silencing the Past, in which he really grappled with these issues uh, that are fundamentally, uh, that, you know, he, he thinks about history. And yes, of course, it is, a lot of it is epistemological. Like how do we know what we know in relating to knowledge and production of knowledge? But he, I think to me, gets to the bottom, you know, to the sort of bedrock of the issue, which isn't just epistemological, as important as it is. Uh, it's fundamentally a problem of power uh, and of power relations that are at work at every step in the production of historical knowledge, from the production of sources to the narration of what we are told is history, right? Uh, and now being aware of that makes you think about history much more as a field of struggle than as a settled reservoir of facts. I guess that's kind of like what I thought about in the background of this piece. Maybe if I didn't express it quite this way uh, when I wrote it. No, no, you did, you did. And thanks as well for, for expanding on this. Well, I mean, as with a lot of these episodes, I can definitely turn these into like seven hour seminars, but... <laughs> difficult on a podcast format. So I guess to kind of wrap up, um, I usually ask all guests to recommend three books or honestly, people often cheat and say five and two, and sometimes it's a movie in there. So it doesn't really matter, but what are three books that you would recommend to, to our listeners and like, why those three? So since I mentioned Trio, maybe I'll just go with that. Uh, Jean-Rof Trio is really the first book that I would mention. Uh, it's a book that's really about 
Haiti. It's about the history of Haiti and the Haitian Revolution, uh, but it's much more than that as well, uh, because it's methodological in approach and anthropological, sort of in its awareness of positions. It's about how historians can grapple with histories that have been silenced in various ways, uh, from the sources that we use to write history to grand narratives that tend to reproduce themselves, including the omissions and silences within them. So in short, for me, that was like a, you know, a book that uh, really changed how I think about history. And I think it's, it kind of throws open this wide question about what is history? It's not, it's not just about democratizing, which is, you know, like uh, buzzwords, like let's add, democratize history. <laughs> I don't know what does that mean, but I think Truro really thinks through it. And, you know, history is not just about history books or about people who write them. Um, it, 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 history it is a much bigger field of social relations and political relations and power relations that embody themselves in everything from architecture to artifacts and so on. Um, and that you learn about constantly about history outside of the, the academia as well. So huge book, uh, hugely recommended. Uh, I guess second book that I would recommend, um, speaking of Bosnian uh, things, you know, that, that we have been talking about. Um, so I would say that uh, there's a book uh, that's going to be called, I think coming out with University of Missouri Press, uh, I, I happen to have read it. Uh, it it's a collection of essays or chapters uh, called Bosnian Studies um, that, uh, that is going to really compile a huge array of um, different views. It's edited by uh, Jeneta Karabegovic and Adna Karamehic Oates. Uh, but there are, I think, a dozen or so, uh, or maybe more, like given the co-authors, uh, 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 authors within the book. So, but in any case, Janeta Karabegovic and Adna Karamejic Oates are the editors of this uh, collection that I find really inspiring because uh, these are, this is a new generation of uh, Bosnian scholars, most of them in diaspora uh, or, you know, not just in Bosnia, but having been dispersed by the war and by the post-war uh, migrations and, and people leaving Bosnia, but also returning there, uh, having to think about this place on the periphery, you know, I think a much wider way, much wider way than it would have been the case 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, so I think it actually taps into a lot of uh, things that deal with uh, memory, uh, that deal with diaspora studies, uh, that deal with uh, uh, post-genocide and post-conflict societies uh, with really often just sometimes meaning like things like, you know, what is home and abroad mean when you think about places like Bosnia or Beirut, you know, places that are marked by these huge waves of migration. Uh, um, <clears throat> so that's like the second book. And third book, uh, again, something that didn't, that hasn't come out yet or isn't out yet, but I think it will be within six months or a year or so. Uh, it's by Larisa Yasharovich, who is an anthropologist uh, now working in, in Bosnia. Uh, she is, uh, and I think actually this, now that I think about it, this would like to really interest you, Joey, and maybe your listeners as well, given the kind of, I think, affinities with uh, environmental and solar punk and other issues. And her book is going to be 
and it, it's, 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 it's a book, but it's also a documentary or a film uh, that she has made. Uh, I was, I've seen parts of it, and I talked with her this summer, so I, I sort of feel relatively up-to-date on it. Uh, and I think it's called Beekeeping in the End Times. And it's really a kind of on-the-ground look uh, in Bosnia, situated on a, in a very concrete terrain, but it's uh, beekeeping and, and the disappearance of bees uh, in a place that's already undergoing now, you know, having, in a sense, having the world end once with the war in the 1990s and then recover, but having to face climate collapse and uh, dwindling bee populations and all the sort of cascading effects and the consequences that it has on our world uh, from food chains to uh, species and, and so on and on. Uh, but in any case, she approaches it with anthropological, but also uh, very sensitive uh uh, a spiritual angle, I would say, in the sense that she asks questions that, you know, that people who are, uh, in this sense, many of them come we already with ideas about the end of the world, that is like Kiamet, you know, the, the, end, the end times uh, in, in the Muslim tradition. So it's really something, I think, unique uh, and is going to stand out in how we think about places that are affected by not just conflict and politics, but by a rapidly changing environment and the, the ways that people make sense or don't make sense of it. So Amazing. those would be the things that I plug. Yeah, no, amazing. I, I really had my eye on the Bosnian study ones. Uh, definitely going to get that one. And I think I heard of the beekeeping one, but I'm not sure. But that that sounds right up my alley of things that I want to to definitely yes. read and explore and maybe have her, um, have her, her, you said, this woman? Yeah, yes, Larissa Yasharevich, yeah. Let's see, okay. Yeah, definitely, definitely something's going to be on my radar. Um, okay, well, uh, all that's left, uh, Edin, is to thank you a lot for your time. This was a fantastic conversation. Um, I'm sure listeners would agree. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if you have any final thoughts. Go for it. Otherwise, no, uh, I mean, I, I, my final thought is that, like, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. And, <laughs> uh, everyone should listen more of it. I, I think the conversations, including... The recent conversation on Syria and Ukraine uh, alone would be, I think, a, a fantastic uh, introduction to the kinds of issues that that, that uh, you like to talk about. Uh, so, amazing, yeah. amazing. Well, th thanks a lot, Edin. Okay, thank you, Joey. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.